For some, church is easy. For others, it's complicated or even something to be avoided at all costs. In the last few years, we've seen data revealing massive numbers of millennials walking away from church, but only small increases in atheism or agnosticism. That means there are a lot of us out there who still identify as spiritual or even Christian, but we just can't bring ourselves to walk into a church. As COVID-19 continues to storm its way across the world, we are faced with a new reality. Church isn't somewhere you go on a Sunday morning anymore. It's on your Facebook feed every bloody Sunday. If you found it annoying or confronting, I don't think you'd be alone in that. The mention of church can bring up lots of triggering topics, and among them is today's interview, the issue of purity culture. I hope you'll enjoy today's chat, taking on one of the big taboos gifted to us by evangelicalism in the 90s and early 2000s. So make yourself a cuppa and get comfortable. I'm Kit Kennedy and this is Unchurchable. Erica Smith had me at Purity Culture Dropout. This lady is a nationally recognized, award-winning sexuality educator from Philadelphia in the United States. She has written for so many publications and appeared on a number of mixed media platforms, including podcasts. And I'm thrilled she took some time to stop by Unchurchable today. Erica's areas of expertise are LGBTQ plus issues, adolescent sexuality and sexual health, the sexual needs of justice involved young people, and a comprehensive sexuality education for people raised in purity culture. With a bachelor's degree in women's studies, a master's in education, 20 years experience under her belt, and less wrinkles than I have, I'm sure you'll find her (laughs) extremely interesting. Now, Erica, my best friend is a lesbian. My other best Uh friend is my gay ex-husband. All three of us came up through purity culture and two of us have also survived sexual orientation change efforts before going through the process of deconstructing into a place of acceptance. We are a micro sample of the readers of my blog and the listeners to this podcast. And this issue is one that comes up a lot in my Twitter feed and my DMs. So I'm sure you can see the draw card for me to bring you onto this show. So how are you? (laughs) I'm good. Um, you know, things are things have been intense in America for months now. Um, mm-hmm. We have right. we have COVID, and we're having what I like to think of as a revolution, um, mm-hmm. an uprising here oh, around yeah. racial justice issues. And Philadelphia, where I live, has definitely been affected greatly by both of those things. So it's mm-hmm. just a it's an intense time. Um, but I I will say that the work that I do. Um, hasn't been affected much by anything going on in the world because people are dealing with their sexuality at all the, all times. And yeah. that's something that um, really hasn't slowed down even during the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, I've been thinking, it seems like the more time that we're locked in our houses and we're socially distanced, the more time we really have to sit with ourselves and the inner workings of our, our psyche and our... <laughs> Yeah, you know, the forces that exist around us that impact so much on our mental health. And of course, sexuality and indeed relationships would be one that kind of rates pretty highly on that list. Absolutely. Um, I've got to ask, how did you get involved in this area of work? Um, In sexuality work in general or with the purity culture stuff? I guess LGBT and and purity culture. What what were those particular draw cards for you? Yeah, um, so... When I was very young, like in high school and even before, I felt I had like a strong sense of right and wrong and justice. Mm -hmm. And I was very interested in women's issues and feminist issues. So starting from a pretty young age. And when I was in college, that became directed at women's reproductive health. And I found 
just such fascination with how much um, there was an attempt to just control our bodies, especially, mm -hmm. um, you know, growing up in America, the politics, there's a lot of conservative politics and just battles raging over who can make decisions and mm -hmm. women are being shamed for almost anything they do. And mm -hmm. I was drawn to that early. And so my first work was actually in a reproductive health clinic and it was yeah. a clinic that did abortion provider. It was an abortion provider yeah. And I was one of the counselors there. And yeah. so that was like the start of my sexual health work. And I just always felt like it's an area of life that's so fundamental to every human, but we have mm -hmm. so much baggage around it. And oh, it's goodness, really yes. empowering yeah. for people to have the real information about their bodies and the real information about their lives and their relationships. And so I've seen through my work how transformative that can be. Um, yeah. For most of my career, I did work with young people, so adolescents who were incarcerated in the city and, wow. you know, providing them with the kind of information and education about their bodies and sex that they had never been given before. And mm -hmm. I did that for, I guess, 17 years, and yeah. then decided that I wanted to work for myself. And right yeah. around that time, I started hearing people really talking about how purity culture was something that had greatly affected them. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I did not grow up in it myself, um, which that might be a question you're going to ask. So yes, I'll hold yes, off on that for a minute. Me on that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what I was finding is that once I sort of had an online platform as a sex educator, I had people just telling me these stories about mm. I was denied sex education. I've always been ashamed of sex. I, you know, had to wear a purity ring. I was told that I was chewed up gum. Mm -hmm. And those stories kind of really inspired me to tailor sex education specifically for people who had that experience. Yeah. Wow. So and that was my next question was, did you, <laughs> did you grow up in purity culture? And you didn't. Um, no. Were you, were, you, were you exposed to evangelicalism or like church growing up or is this? I being... wasn't. Okay. It's, it's quite, my upbringing is quite, um, I mean, I was raised by parents that just never went to church. We were yeah. what I would call like culturally Christian. Like we yes. celebrated all the Christian holidays, but we yeah. did not go to church except for maybe on Christmas Eve. Yes. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> every once in a while I would go to like Wednesday night Bible school with a friend or, you know, summer vacation Bible school, but I never felt comfortable there because it just wasn't something I had been raised yeah. with. Yeah. Um, and so I did not have exposure to evangelical purity culture ideas. The only thing is that as I was like a younger sex educator, I saw this kind of agenda being pushed and I yeah. knew that it was bad news. Um, mm -hmm. The American government spent a lot of money on abstinence only education like in the <sighs> 1990s and 2000s. And I knew like this isn't, it doesn't work. It's yeah. not effective yeah. as a public health strategy. Yeah. So I feel like all of this, theories I had about how badly it was affecting people are validated because, you know, now lots yeah. of adults are telling their truth about having that experience. Yeah. And it is a fascinating experience. Um, I guess I grew up on one side of it. I'm, I'm straight um, mm -hmm. and I'm a pastor's daughter and I ended up 
married to a guy who had been put through gay conversion therapy. Um, oh, and wow. both of us had um, had grown up in purity culture. So we had our first kiss two days before our wedding, you know, you know, but that mm -hmm. was, that was as far as that went. Um, and, but my story, it, it does sit at the intersection of kind of the LGBTQ stuff and the purity culture stuff, but I guess unchurchable, the podcast and, and the blog, um, is, is about these people who've grown up inside um, evangelicalism, but it doesn't fit them anymore. And mm -hmm. two of the big exclusion points for people is either LGBTQ, um, you know, if they identify that way and they're not accepted by church, and the other one is attitudes to sex and reproductive health. Um, and you might laugh and you might, or, or you might just go, yeah, that's so typical, but I'm just about to start another uni degree. And I got online to do the compulsory respect um, modules that you do before you start education. And then there was this one about kind of sexual health. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got this. And I got to the consent <laughs> section and went, holy wow, I do not got this. Wow. <laughs> and at the grand old yeah. age of let's just say 21, I'm not 21, I'm not <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the first time that I've actually thought about consent, about the ability to withdraw consent at any point. And this is something that I'm finding is a common experience for particularly women re-entering dating post-separation or divorce who've grown up in mm -hmm. purity culture. Oh, what? I'm nodding my head very hard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you finding is the common issue, well, are the common issues that people who've survived purity culture and are now kind of deconstructing that, what issues are they facing um, in your kind um, of circle? Yeah, so the issue that you just brought up, consent, that is, I mean, you can untangle so much just starting with consent because yeah. the, you know, being raised with the idea that your body does not belong to you. It mm -hmm. belongs to the, you know, the man that you are going <laughs> to be married to, that you are going to please sexually, and you're always going to be available to him. Yeah. Um, you know, being raised with the idea that you can't really speak up about your own needs and desires, mm -hmm. that that translates to problems and with understanding consent or problems with being able to f like feel like you can say no. Yeah. And it also causes folks... Um, an inability to really speak up about their sexual desires and needs if yeah. they're even aware of what they are in the first place. Ooh, so okay. a lot of folks, yeah, a lot of <laughs> folks will tell me like, I don't even know what I like because I just made myself not even think about anything because yeah. I was told that if I started to feel desire that it was, the metaphor is always like it's a train running off the tracks and I can't <laughs> stop it. So, you know, yes. folks will tell me. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Common metaphors. Folks yeah. will tell me, like, I just have never really been in touch with my desire and I don't know what I want. Mm. Um, I do I do run across people that um, they worry so much about if their desire is normal, if their yeah. sexual relationship is normal, if the things that they like to do sexually are normal. And in 99% of cases, the answer is yes. There is such a wide variety of what is normal in the human sexual experience and yeah. you know if you're not raised knowing that it's easy to think like oh it's just me I'm bad or I'm a freak or there's you know I just can't be pure like it's just yeah. my failing yeah um, 
Now, it, I guess in my kind of my reading of the gay conversion therapy literature um, that sits on my bookshelf at the moment, um, mm. I think it's going to be burnt in an effigy when we move house. Um, oh, lovely! <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so it was a it was a conversion therapy manual, and it really pathologized desire. It made it a problem, a symptom of a disease. And now the expectation was that if you got married at eleven o'clock on the twelfth of May. Any expression of sexual desire was sinful and a little bit depraved up until kind of 11.59. And then after you've, you've gone through that ceremony, you're going to become this sex goddess that just knows yes. everything. Yep. <laughs> knows everything works and everything's going to be great. There's going to be fireworks. And that's just not being the experience of so many Christians in pure oh, culture. Absolutely. <laughs> Where do you start unlearning that um, that kind of pathologized approach to desire? Where do you start claiming sexuality is something that doesn't belong to your husband, but that's something that belongs to you as an individual? Yeah. Um, so one of the first things that I like to have the folks I work with do is to think about what your own sexual values actually are. Because, you know, if you were given a very strict set of sexual values by somebody else, then very often people haven't even thought, like, what do I truly believe and what feels mm. right for me? Yeah. And that can be a very difficult question to answer. Just, yeah. you know, giving yourself permission to create your own value system around sex. Mm -hmm. So that's one place to start. And then I think learning kind of the the factual scientific stuff about how our bodies work and how, yeah. you know, our pleasure responses work and how, you know, people with vulvas and clitorises, we have, you know, one very specific body part that's <laughs> only made for pleasure. There's yeah. no other reason for a clitoris that, you know, yeah. that we know of. So, you know, learning some of that factual stuff about how pleasure works and the, the biology of it, I think, can be helpful, too. Yeah, it, it was. It's interesting because I've got I've got two young kids, and raising them without body shame right from the get go has been something mm. that um, that my my darling ex husband and I have, you know, and we've only very recently split, but um, that we decided to do. It's amazing how early we start to learn shame, and yes, and that's um, often how it starts with parents mm. just being like cover yourself up, don't touch yourself there, you know, those those messages stick around. Yeah, and like growing up in kind of evangelical purity culture, put put women like me in a double bind because you're supposed to kind of dance with abandon as for the Lord, but also not let any of the boys know that you've got titties, um, <laughs> which is difficult when your cleavage starts at your clavicle sometimes. Um, but, <laughs> you know, so unlearning body shame um and you know and body positivity especially like you know there's this body positivity movement with, which is great for curvier women um but also very specifically when it comes to christian women this must be a, a unique kind of challenge do you come across that in your line of work as well absolutely um i have had a lot of clients that would identify that would self-identify as fat that are just mm -hmm. like yeah this is my body i'm a larger size woman or i'm a plus size woman mm -hmm. and for many of them, they'll tell me how control of their appetite is closely linked to 
sexual purity and the things they learned in evangelical culture that you have to have control of all those things. And, um, for some of them, when they begin to cast off ideas about sexual shame, they also are unpacking all of the cultural messages about bodies and thinness. And they're kind of unlearning diet culture at the same time that they're unlearning purity culture. And they're like, you know what? I'm, I refuse to feel ashamed of my fatness. I'm, if I'm going to refuse to feel ashamed that I'm a sexual being, like I'm just going to undo all of the shame. And so that does come up quite a bit. So what I'm hearing is that your work sits at the intersection of so many different things because purity culture and especially for women also sits at the intersection of kind of complementarian culture that doesn't place as high a value on a woman's ability to choose or speak or, um, you know, be equal to a man. It it sits at Mm -hmm. the intersection of diet culture and body shame and it sits at the intersection of, um, in so many cases, LGBT, um, Q plus issues that's there's a few challenges within here so starting at a point of i am a sexual being what are some of the key beliefs that we need to kind of i guess own in order to move forward in a healthy way when it comes to reinventing our kind of sexual ethic or our sexual life ah great question um one of the first is that you deserve pleasure that is okay to seek pleasure just for the sake of pleasure, that it doesn't have to be tied to anything else. It doesn't have to be tied to a partner, another person. It doesn't have to be tied to, you know, reproduction or even love. It's just you're, you're deserving of pleasure. So that is, that is one thing to um, address and try to internalize. I know it's easier said than done, but yeah. that, is a, that is an important um, value. Um, yeah, and, and a difficult one because often, like, if you've been raised with the idea that if you engage in sexual activity, you then become damaged goods, um, sort of unworthy of marriage, um, or you feel – a lot of people feel like if they've made – and I'm using air quotes here – a misstep mm-hmm. that there's sort of this subpar future for them or a subpar future partner or there's only one partner for them and they might not deserve them anymore um so that in itself is a is a big thing and i i saw on your facebook page that you're actually promoting a um a fundraiser to buy sex toys for people of color yeah (laughs) i was like at first i was like oh golly and then i was like hang on this is confronting (laughs) my belief that pleasure is yeah not okay it's confronting my wrong belief that pleasure is not something that we deserve and you're right yeah. Is. <laughs> yeah that is a I mean that's such a wonderful example of you, you know when you're unlearning something like purity culture you just constantly have to notice when you feel that discomfort mm-hmm. and then think about like what is this bringing up for me and those moments are going to happen over and over and over again so mm-hmm. when I work with folks we talk about that because I know that at the end of you know, six weeks with me, they're not going to be 100%, you know, purity culture is not going to be just taken out of them. It's still going to be something that they have to confront over and over. And the important thing is having the skills to do that and being able to say like you did, like, that makes me feel weird. What is it about that? Oh, it's because, you know, thinking about just somebody getting pleasure just for the sake of pleasure is uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Okay, so that's an important lesson that I just want to sit on mm-hmm. right there is, yeah. is discomfort doesn't always mean wrongness. It sometimes means notice and look inwards and, and, and sit on that thought for a while and see where it's coming from. Um, uh-huh. That's, you know, that active metacognition is something that kind of has to be developed over time a little bit, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, and I mean... A, a parallel is with all of the conversations about race in America and the treatment of black Americans happening mm-hmm. right now. I think that um, as white people, we get confronted with those uncomfortable feelings all the time. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do when I feel like really uncomfortable by something that I read or something someone said. I try to sit with that and I think, what is that bringing up for me? Because I mm-hmm. think that's the only way to work to get to the other side and, you know, be better for people. (laughs) Yeah. Now, um, surely, I guess when we're talking about uncomfortable topics, the topic of birth control must Mm -hmm. be a huge gap in people's knowledge. um, Yeah. When they're kind of coming out of purity culture because there's, um, and there's the issue of, sexual health in terms of safety in terms of not getting an sti there's Mm -hmm. sexual safety in terms of consent and and engaging in safe sexual practices and then there's the issue of birth control and in the states i think it's been a highly politicized issue in that a woman's right to choose has been highly contested um but this conversation is not like it's not commonly had in churches like okay so you're getting married are you on birth control what are you using like you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you feel empowered to make good choices what do you find the gaps in people's information um is when they're kind of going through this purity culture dropout process which i love by the way i think yeah dropout is great (laughs) thank you it just seemed to fit (laughs) (laughs) i love it um I've also th- I've also thought recently I'm like I guess some folks would consider themselves like purity culture rejects like in an empowering Ooh. way where they're like yeah. you know I reject this or this rejected me <laughs> yeah yes um, but it can go either way so dropout yeah kind of, I don't know it kind of it sounds to me like there's a little bit more of a choice involved here yep, like I, for I chose sure. to leave school or I chose to leave purity culture not yep. not the church rejected me and so I started sleeping <laughs> around like that's <laughs> it's a bit more of a sex positive spin on it I think it is that's <laughs> yeah. right so um, yeah so birth gaps in knowledge mm. for yeah. birth control um this and is a tricky health, one yeah. yeah yeah I mean in in general there's so much to keep up with when it comes to like medical advances in birth control. So there's always like there's there's methods that come on the market all the time or different, you know, different types of IUDs. And so the the people that want to learn about birth control are usually folks that um, have not had a lot of sexual experience in general. Um, The married folks I work with, you know, the married folks I work with, aren't usually the ones that want to talk about birth control, but it's more the, the single people that are like, I want to have casual sex for the first time, but I honestly Mm -hmm. don't know where to begin. And so they'll want to know like how to find out what birth control method is best for me. Yeah. And also they'll want to know how do I have conversations about sexual health with partners? Like when do you do that? What do you ask them? (laughs) How often do I get tested? What STIs do I need to worry about? Um, 
you know, what are the ba- the best safer sex practices, mm-hmm. things like that. I like that you use the term safer sex because does that imply that there's always a risk? Generally, yeah. yes. I think mm-hmm. that's just that's just um uh, probably the most ethical way to put it. Even, you know, sex within a committed relationship where everyone is monogamous, like mm-hmm. if you don't want to get pregnant, there's a risk. So there's yeah. always, you know, we just I think as a public health um, perspective, saying safer rather than safe is the best way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a nice way to nice way to talk about it. Now, um, I think I saw it on your page. It was a statement that said you can be sex positive, but not in a sexual relationship, or you can be sex positive and not engage in casual sex. This, oh yeah, um, this is a bit of a mind bender for a lot of people. Like, what is sex positivity? Um, and how do I navigate this um, if, while I'm kind of deconstructing purity culture? Yeah, that is a wonderful question. And I think a lot of folks, when they hear the term sex positivity or when they think about deconstructing purity culture, they have a fear that if they embrace sex positivity, it means that they have to have a lot of sex with a lot of different partners, that they have to do things outside their comfort zone, like, you know, get into kinky stuff that's not necessarily their style, or, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to end up at a sex party in a gangbang or something. (laughs) And like, (laughs) I like to emphasize, like, unlearning purity culture and being sex positive doesn't mean that's going to be your path, but it means that you are open to it being anybody's path and that you don't judge or make assumptions or shame other people for their their consensual sexual behavior. So I've yeah. had folks who, you know, are I would call them clients who have been extremely sex positive, meaning that they they have a healthy idea of what they want in a sexual relationship mm-hmm. and they have a good masturbation life with themselves mm-hmm. and they don't judge what other people are doing. Yeah. And some of these folks have never had sex with a partner. So okay. They're, they're people that have never had a sexual experience with someone else, but I would call them extremely sex positive. So yeah. it's really just about your attitudes and your beliefs. And if yeah. you do find that when you deconstruct, you are someone that enjoys like, you know, things that are maybe outside the norm, like polyamory and mm-hmm. um, like BDSM, like that's okay. And yeah. some t- some people find themselves going that way and other people yeah. just want to be in a monogamous marriage yeah. and be sex positive. Yeah. Now this, this is an interesting thing that you raise because there's outside the norm, but you, but that's a different thing from unhealthy or abnormal sexual practices, mm-hmm. isn't it? You, like you said yes. it right back at the beginning that 99% of the time that wondering, am I normal for like liking this or liking that? Where, I guess, where is the line when it comes to unhealthy? Um, can we, uh, can we is, answer this question at all? Or is it one of those existential things that requires a PhD? Oh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could probably spend a whole hour or more talking about yeah. this or even a whole, you know, semester of classes. <laughs> but, you know, in general, if, if sexual behavior is consensual for mm-hmm. all parties and everyone is, you know, able to consent, meaning mm-hmm. like you're not drunk or you're not underage or you're not like yeah. developmentally disabled, like consensual yeah. sexual behavior is fine and healthy. Yeah. Um, there are sexual practices that some people do that others 
would consider like out there or unhealthy for themselves. Um, yeah. You know, maybe certain kinds of heavier BDSM that involve like, you know, playing with bodily harm and things like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, even yeah. that I would never, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say like, that's an unhealthy behavior. Yeah. I think it's one of those things you have to figure out for yourself. Does this feel good? Is this adding to my life? Do I like it? Um, yeah. You know, is everyone involved having a good time? Yeah. Yeah. And, and does everybody know? I guess I guess we hear about safe words, but um, the, the ability to withdraw consent if this is going to a place that you don't like um, mm-hmm. and and the knowledge that, that that's going to be listened to. Now, I just want to take this moment to kind of interject here and say if you've just turned into tuned into this podcast today because we're talking about a sexy topic and you're like, oh, this sounds interesting, <laughs> I want you to also follow this up with the interview with Kevin Garcia that is directly, well, it was directly before this one, um, where he actually talks about um, some theology specifics and with Mike Phillips, who is a trauma therapist, who actually talks about kind of the sexual ethic from the Christian perspective and talks about how in the Bible it was very much tied to um, inheritance and and patriarchy in that women were not um, equal to men in any way. They were very much property. So if you're interested in the theological underpinnings of deconstructing purity culture, those are good sessions to listen to. This is talking about stuff on a very personal level on, um, and it's a very important level because as individuals, we need to be able to accept that I am a human, therefore sexuality is part of me. It's not a bad part of me. It's a good part of me. How do I experience it in a healthy way? Would you say that's true, Erica? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd like to move on to the intersectionality of purity culture, LGBTQIA plus and Christianity. Do you experience this intersection a lot? And what are the important learnings that people need to really be able to rest in here in order to develop a healthy sexuality going forward? Um, uh, That's a wonderful question. I do do tend to attract a lot of queer identified um, people Mm -hmm. coming out of purity culture because I myself am queer and I'm very Mm -hmm. open about it. Um, my husband is transgender. I, you know, I've dated people of all genders really. And Mm -hmm. so I'm, you know, very out and proud. So I'm able to sort of speak from my lived experience and my professional experience. So, um, the, Mm -hmm. the queer folks that come to me who were raised in purity culture, one thing they tend to have in common is, you know, repressing it for so long or trying to convince themselves it wasn't really a part of them, not even allowing themselves to, to, see or witness that part of themselves or trying so hard to pray it away. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so repress, a lot of repress, folks, repress. yeah. Yeah. And a lot of them come out much later than they think they would have liked to, if yep. they were not raised in Christianity, they'll say, Oh, you know, I, I came out at 40. I, I wasted so much time. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, this applies to everyone raised in purity culture, not just LGBT people, but it is never too late to, experiment. It's never too late to live your truth. It's never too late to enjoy sex. So, you know, I, I try to tell people like, it doesn't matter that you didn't come out till you were almost 50. Like you've got, you've got time, you've got time. So that's something that comes up a lot. Yeah. Now, um, one that I've noticed is after leaving evangelicalism, after leaving purity culture, after, um, embracing one's true gender or true sexual identity 
for the first time maybe and then engaging in a relationship um, the shame that can surround being seen with your partner public displays of affection mm-hmm. with your partner um, how how do you, how do we move through that how do we and and how do we be allies in the best way that we can in order to support our friends and loved ones who might be facing yeah. this difficulty as they move into what could be the most beautiful relationship or the most beautiful <laughs> stage of their life yeah um i mean one big consideration like when you said folks are feeling shame for being like seen with a partner i think it's important to address like um, is it safe for them to be seen with a partner? Because I definitely have worked with people that they're queer and they know they're queer and they accept their queerness, but if they come out to a family member, they yeah. know that will mean, you know, they might be cut off from family support, whether yeah. that's just emotional or financial or, you know, the love of a family. So yeah. for some people, it is definitely not safe to to be out and to be, like, seen with a partner. Mm. Um And for other folks, I think that you have to just take baby steps, Um, figure out who are your safe people, who are your friends that are allies and be around them and have a, you know, have them around you the first few times that you were in public with your partner and just to rely on the the chosen family you make and the, the community of friends that do accept you. Yeah, and that, that's really interesting. And now what, um, I guess another dilemma that people can often face is if they have this sort of religious trauma that comes from a background like this and and they, they find themselves in a relationship with someone who has no concept of it, what are the important things that a supportive partner can do um, in order to kind of... I guess not sabotage the relationship when they're going, why won't this person hold my hand in public? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I've, um, I've actually worked with partners of people raised in purity culture just to kind of help them along a little. Um, mm. One of the things that I think to say is learn about the experience that your partner raised in purity culture had. If you don't understand what, growing up with those kind of values was like. I usually advise them to read Pure by Linda K. Klein. And I will tell them like, you know, I know you love your girlfriend, but if, if, if you don't really feel like you understand her family's values and how it affects her, like make a point to learn about it and also to be patient with her. And, you know, sometimes therapy is really important for both parties um, Mm -hmm. to work through those things. And, it yeah. is, you know, sometimes really needed. Like it's hard to undo sexual shame on your own. Yeah, that is an important thing. I think it's hard to do any, um, hard to undo any type of shame that was gifted to you by an institution like church without mm-hmm. talking it through with at least somebody who understands, um, preferably a qualified somebody who um who knows? But I've definitely found since since leaving evangelicalism, I have needed to speak to other people who have left evangelicalism, who or even other people from the same network as what I left, who could say, "Yeah, that happened to me too." Yeah, that wasn't normal, was it? Yeah. Um, and but but for um for like my my best friend and my ex husband, it's been a very different experience, and even very different experiences for both of them because he is a tall um 
good looking male with two kids um, and this kind of little nuclear looking family. Um, Mm -hmm. And he kind of sits in a different place of privilege to what she does. Um, And when she kind of got, um, you know, when it was no longer possible for her to continue going to church, she had to deconstruct in a different way. She had to deal with a different sort of loss of community and she had to navigate it very much by herself. So I can only imagine we can't just lump everyone in the LGBTQIA plus group and say you've faced the same things because oh, yeah. a woman, a queer woman would have faced different things to what a queer man might have, would have faced different things to what a trans person would have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, how, how do we one of the... allies in that space? Sorry, you go. You say whatever you want. Oh, no. <laughs> um, to, answer, to answer your question, um, it's really like ask your friend what, what they need from you. Um, and, and it seems like you've done a good job of listening to the people in your life. You know that your, you know, your female friend's experience was very different than your ex-husband's. Mm. And just knowing that you're right, it's not going to be a monolithic thing. <laughs> so... I um I run support groups for specifically for queer people that were raised yeah. in purity culture and they're all done virtually and it's beautiful because we we have people in Australia and New Zealand who get yeah. on the calls with Americans and they all have similar yet slightly different experiences mm-hmm. and I think it can be very helpful. I mean, like you said talking to other ex-evangelicals or deconstructing evangelicals has been helpful to you and so for people who are queer, they really appreciate coming together with other folks who've had, you know, not the same exact experience, but similar experiences. Yeah. Like yeah. some of those experiences are remembering times when you yourself perpetuated homophobia, oh. remembering the times <laughs> that like, you know, you may have caused harm because you were just doing what you were told. Um, yeah. So yeah. We, we do a lot of processing of that shame and that guilt, like, I feel bad because I harmed gay people when I was still in the church. And so, you know, they have a lot of conversations about that. And it is helpful for them to unpack those, the specific experience of being an LGBTQ person in this um, culture. Yeah. Now, as a, as a person who's kind of walked a little bit of a journey from being, and I will admit quite homophobic to actually supporting my husband through accepting his sexuality to kind of then deconstructing and realizing there are so many stories in the Bible that are queer as heck um, (laughs) that are just there in like broad daylight and we haven't seen it. Um, Owning that shame can be a really challenging moment. And I think even with the Black Lives Matter protest, owning our own the nuanced ways in which um, racism or white supremacy has has kind of seeped into our own attitudes, it can be really difficult. It can be a difficult thing to do because we like to think that we're, you know, we like to think that we're all egalitarian and we're not racist. And yet looking away from the struggles of people who sit at the intersection of some of these issues is kind of, it's ignorant and it's not not an excuse anymore when there's so much information out there. I think mm-hmm. I thought I couldn't ask my queer friends how I could help them. Um, I've got mm. a beautiful uh, trans friend and at, and at the time I had another friend who was going through um, going through the transition and I, I, 
I was scared to ask this beautiful trans friend, hey, how can I help this other friend? What would have helped you mm. at a time? I didn't feel like, I felt like this was taboo, like I was supposed to just not acknowledge that she's a trans woman and just kind of like not talk about it. Um, but not talking about it also allows some pretty real uh, prejudices to exist yeah. even subconsciously. How do we broach this topic in a healthy way? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I'm I trying think to keep she... curveballs here. Aren't no, I? I like it. <laughs> um, I mean, you're right. Silence, silence can breed many unpleasant things in this area, like shame and mm. fear. And if you, you know, I as somebody who is not a trans person, but who is, you know, in like I have Very trans family <laughs> and yeah, and mm. and lots of loved ones and yeah. friends and. Um, they, they don't want you to pretend they're not trans generally. Um, I know I can't speak for every single person and I know I'm speaking as a cisgender woman, but my, you know, in my experience, folks like when you see their full humanity and you acknowledge that like your experience as a trans man is going to be different from a non-trans man. And so that's, you know, one of the easy ways to kind of signify that you're an ally is, um, sharing your pronouns with other people. Mm-hmm. So I always tell folks like when you meet someone new and you think like I don't know what gender this person is or maybe they're trans and yeah. and you know I don't know if they'll feel safe coming out to me like introduce yourself with your pronouns like uh, yes. say hi America, she her. Yeah. And that that right there does several things. It shows that I know more about gender than the average person. It shows okay. that I am somebody who's aware of trans issues. Okay. And so you know, by and large, I don't think folks, they don't necessarily want silence because in those situations, and I'll speak like from my husband's point of view, it makes him wonder like, does that person know I'm trans? Or are they just like, what's mm. it, what are they thinking? Yeah. So, so, yeah. So that is a moment where you can just connect on a very human level with somebody mm-hmm. and without kind of throwing questions at them, project a message yeah. of safety and of acceptance. Um, yeah. And it, Another thing is like if you're if you have a close friend who's queer and trans like chances are they probably don't mind answering questions you know if they're if they're a good friend and you know yeah they're not probably not going to mind but I would steer clear of just asking you know trans people you know casually or that you don't mm. know that well or are acquaintances you know don't don't ask them like tell me about your transition or because that 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 feels a little, that feels icky. Um, yeah. you know, that they don't necessarily want everyone <laughs> they've ever met to be asking them questions just to sort of satisfy their own curiosity. Ah, and that is very, very important. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think when, um, in my experience, sort of leaving evangelicalism in the very unique way that I did, um, I found that a lot of people, asked questions and it began as something that was designed to support me in my trauma and then it became this kind of voyeuristic thing of oh really and then what happened and then what happened I'm like okay you're not interested to help me anymore you're not a Mm. safe place anymore you're gossiping almost and so I found that I was really drawing my circle very close in terms of who I would trust and who I wouldn't Um, so I, something that I've noticed from a lot of my 
uh, trans friends. I say a lot. I, I don't have a huge amount of trans friends, but the ones that I do are beautiful souls, and I'm very proud to know them. Um, they've had people be really rude about asking questions about surgery. Um, mm-hmm. going, oh, you know, have you had top surgery or have you had bottom surgery or, you know, so what have you got? <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and it's very crude and it's very voyeuristic and, and quite disrespectful to ask that question. I think, um, how, you know, I think that's just something that I wanted to kind of raise. Um, do you have any further comments on that particular line of questioning or, you know, approach to conversation? Oh, absolutely. Um, and in addition to being partnered with a trans man, I, I've worked with transgender children and youth for a very mm-hmm. long time. I work at a gender clinic at mm-hmm. a children's hospital. So mm-hmm. this is something that I do trainings on for other mm-hmm. folks. And you, I think you, like, you've already highlighted the importance of not asking invasive questions about people's bodies. Yeah. It is, it would be the same as if a stranger asked you about your genitals. Like, mm. you know, that's just like, just oh, why? <laughs> no, you don't do it. Um, you know, unless you are like, if you're the person's healthcare provider and you need to know something about their body in order to care for them, that's really the only reason you should be asking a trans person, like what kind of body parts or surgery they have. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely a no, no. And it's, you know, people will feel entitled to ask those voyeuristic questions. And it's just, it's really, it's really, you know, not something to do. And it also, there's a myth that all trans folks transition in the same way. There's a Mm -hmm. myth that folks all elect to have medical procedures and that they Mm -hmm. all are going to go on hormones. And that's just absolutely not the case. Yeah. Um, people, people make very different choices about their bodies and some trans folks don't have surgeries. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to certain surgeries like bottom surgery, that's financially off limits for a lot of folks. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's one, not something you ever are going to ask a trans person. (laughs) Um, and, and two, like just not a question that applies to everybody because everyone has a different experience. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's so true. You wouldn't ask a person, you know, you wouldn't just ask anybody about that. I remember when I was about seven months pregnant with um, my second child, I, I carry like the mish, like I'm like the a blimp, like I'm just huge, <laughs> like gigantic. Um, and I found it really confronting the amount of people who would come up and rub my belly or comment. I on- love that you brought that up because <laughs> I was going to bring that up as an equivalent, like where people feel yeah. ownership over your body's experience. Yeah. And I just remember I was standing in the line at the pharmacy and there were three or four women standing around and going, oh no, you've, you've dropped. You're going to have the baby in all day. And I'm like, I'm seven months pregnant. Oh, well you must have got your dates wrong. You have to be further along than that. Are you sure there's only one? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, and no. when I turned around and said, are you done giving me feedback on my body? Cause I've got some feedback on yours. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and I didn't give them feedback. It was more to drive home a point. <laughs> yeah. They scattered fast. I mean, like, yeah. Like, we don't own other people's experience of their bodies. And um, no. we don't, we also don't own other people's decisions when it comes to things like grooming or, mm-hmm. you know, who they have sex with or whether they're in a committed relationship or not. And I think even. In, I think Christianity has to kind of deconstruct this a little bit um, because women are not owned by their husbands. 
women get to have a say in whether or not they have children or at least they should in yeah. a healthy relationship. So we need to talk about this sexual ethic a little bit more because um, a lot of that abstinence-only education comes from an idea of, okay, you're kind of on hold until you get this, this you know, lightning bolt from the sky saying, this is your husband, and then you kind of enter Absolutely. into a lifetime of sexual servitude to him. How are we supposed to create a healthy attitude to pleasure and deserving pleasure if that's our experience entering into it? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things as somebody not raised in purity culture, I have been the most, I guess, shocked and also fascinated when people tell me that they had to make decisions based on a future imaginary husband that they didn't even know yet. Right. You know, the idea of when you're 12, you got to write a letter to your future husband. Yeah. And I've met women who told me, like, I wasn't allowed to get my ears pierced because my father said that my husband will decide that someday. Oh, wow. My dad decided yeah. that, but, you know, I guess he kind of... <laughs> oh, my mom. I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's better than him giving yeah. the task to someone that doesn't even exist. <laughs> yeah, as to whether or not... Yeah, oh, gosh. Let's not even talk about tattoos. My goodness. Oh, right. <laughs> you, you might have seen that meme that floated around the internet saying that men prefer debt-free virgins without tattoos. Oh, yeah. And it was kind of... It was kind of laughed about in kind of exvangelical circles, but there was a part of me that was like, well, yeah, because I, I got married at 29. <laughs> I was a virgin when I got married. Um, my husband and I were actually set up um, by by my dad um, and who, you know, yeah, any of that's a saga. Um, <laughs> so, and I had a business, I was 29, like I had credit card debt. I had no tattoos and I was a virgin though. So, you know, I had two out of the three. I had two out of the yeah. three. Um, <laughs> and now I'm a person who just thinks tattoos are so beautiful and thinks that if it's a person, if it's part of a person's self-expression, then fabulous, like great. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't got brave that's actually... to get one yet, but I will. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, I had a, I had a client session with a young woman. Um, she's very young, I think maybe 21 and she is having a big contentious issue with her parents because she's begun getting tattooed. And mm. they said to her, like, your husband, your future husband isn't going to like that. And so, you know, she's yeah. really, she's owning her body and taking her own actions on her body by doing that. And you can just, her parents just, they don't like that at all. So absolutely that is a big thing yeah and it also perpetuates an interesting myth like i referred to earlier about the ownership of women um learning to sit in a space where nobody has ownership of me i have ownership of me like at this point in my life is the first time in my life i'm going okay i'm single i answer to my own code of ethics and mm -hmm. if i and I, I guess i'm accountable to my children in terms of they need to have the best of me, but they don't need to know about all the ins and outs of all this different stuff. They need to have the best mother that they can. She needs to be the happiest mother that she can be. She needs to be emotionally um, and physically safe and financially stable. But that's something that I need for me as well. And for the first time in my life, I am not answering to my dad 
or to my husband, who who actually was, my husband was very egalitarian. He always used to say to me, fuck the patriarchy. And I'd say, yes, dear, yes, dear. And he's like, that's not how it works. You can't say fuck the patriarchy because wonderful. my husband says it. Oh, he's great. He's fantastic. <laughs> fabulous, actually. He's fabulous. That's the word that fits in. <laughs> but, you know, it's an interesting and an uncomfortable place for me to be. And I'm facing this in my mid-30s with a couple of degrees under my belt with a with a business um and with two kids but but you know I'm starting this out from a place of confidence and self-assuredness but for a lot of people they're they're starting this process almost needing to ask permission so I guess as a final question before we wrap this session out what do we need to do in order to give ourselves permission to try and move into this space Oh, um, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, (laughs) how do you give your, I'm like, how do you give yourself permission? Like you just have to truly believe that you deserve better and you have to really acknowledge that what, what experience you're having right now with life and your sexual values isn't working for you and isn't going to work long term. And you know, if someone is listening, who's in that position, I would say, ask yourself, do you want to be five years down the road and still living with these same values? Or do you want to be, you know, a freer person who's more in touch with yourself? Mm -hmm. And if you feel like I couldn't bear the thought of being in the same place, you know, five, 10 years from now and not, not knowing what my body likes and never having pleasure and feeling miserable every time I have sex or someone touches me. Like if, if that's what, if you can't imagine continuing on like that, then it's time to like, just give yourself permission to undo it. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's really important. I remember speaking to a friend who had come out as gay and he said, I had to be me for my mental health. I had to be me. And it involved some really courageous conversations with his parents who were also in ministry it it involved a lot of discomfort but he had to be himself and I think at this time in history it's important to note mental health mental illness and mental health is a very important thing to have a watch over the statistics for queer and questioning young people in churches is not healthy it's not good Mm -hmm. your mental health matters your sense of worthiness as a person matters your sense that you need to navigate a healthy way through life with a healthy view of yourself with a healthy view of relationships sexuality is very much involved in this whole conversation we can't separate it because we can't pray the gay away it doesn't work Um, statistics Mm -hmm. don't support Uh, sexual orientation or gender identity change efforts Um, and we know that repression is not a healthy strategy when it comes to building well-being in your life so I always say get a therapist they're a good thing Um, (laughs) but I think we've also come away Mm -hmm. with some really um, good things to wrestle with today one is that pleasure is good two is that you deserve it Three is that there are support groups available and and four is that you can always find someone to talk it through with. So anything else you'd like to add, Erica? Oh, um, I think just advocate for yourself. Um, Sometimes I meet folks that they're afraid to speak up to their partners and they're even afraid to speak up to their doctors. So they'll Mm -hmm. deal with 
you know, sexual health issues or vaginal health issues for far too long. Mm -hmm. So realize that you are your best advocate and it's, you know, you're the person that can do that and you might be used to just giving all your burdens to God and not really taking action. But in this case, like you need to take some action and advocate for yourself. Yep. I would give that a hearty amen. Erica, what is your your Instagram handle to round out this session? Yeah, it's all one word. So Erica Smith, E-R-I-C-A Smith dot sex dot ed. And if you find me on Instagram, that's where, you know, it'll link to my website and information about like, you know, how to get involved in, in working with me if that's something you want to do. But I, I do provide a lot of content, you know, for anybody and hopefully people will find something that speaks to them. And you know what? I think the fact that you offer some of these support groups via virtual sessions so that people internationally can join in is very important. And I'd encourage all the listeners out there. Um, unfortunately, religious trauma often intersects with um, ideas about sex and sexuality, with ideas about your value as a, as a woman, as a person, or perhaps as a non-binary or gender non-conforming person. I'm not sure whether I'm using the right language there, but I hope you'll hear my You intent. are, yep. Um, <laughs> So always seek out people to talk to because if there's anything I've learned in life is that if you're going through a struggle, you're not the only one who is. There is always someone else. There is always somebody who has information that's helpful. Sometimes it involves seeking them out and finding the right people, including medical professionals, to help you. So Erica Smith, Purity Culture Dropout, I love it. Thank (laughs) you for talking to us today. And to everybody out there, thank you for listening to Unchurchable.